Hey Moonies, welcome to the Cigar Moon Fan Club podcast. I'm your host, Victoria L. Johnson, and I'm here with Jordan Calhoun. He's the editor-in-chief at Lifehacker, host of the Upgrade podcast, writer of the Humans Being newsletter for The Atlantic, and he has a book coming out called Piccolo is Black, a memoir of race, religion, and pop culture, which sounds awesome already. Um, Super happy to have him on the show. Hey, Jordan. Hey, thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. Really glad to have you here. It's so exciting. Um, well, the first question I have to ask you is, what's your first memory of watching Sailor Moon? Oh, man. I started watching Sailor Moon when it first came out on TV before it was on Toonami. I was listening to a prior episode of yours where you and a guest, I think her name was Ochi, you guys were talking about whether Sailor Moon came out uh, on TV prior to to the Toonami block. And I remember that. I remember before it was on Toonami, it was on network TV. And the reason I remember is because I was too broke for cable. Like I'm from a poor family and we did not have cable. And I would watch Sailor Moon before school started. It was like one of the cartoons in that like early, I don't know, between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. lineup. And I had two times per day where I would be sort of exposed to Sailor Moon. One was early in the morning before school when I would watch it uh, before we left for the day. And the other one was when the ice cream truck would roll around after school. And I got in the habit of either getting the Sonic the Hedgehog ice cream that had the bubble gum as the nose or the Sailor Moon ice cream, which had the crystal and it had the ice cream and or not the ice cream. It had the uh, it had the bubble gum in the middle of the crystal. And I got used to getting that. And that was my early exposure to, to Sailor Moon. That was some of my earliest exposure to anime. I must have been in elementary school at the time. It was, this was like 95, 96, something like that. Oh, my God. I am so jealous that you had Sailor Moon ice cream. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. That truck would come around. Parents hated it because they knew that we would start begging for a dollar so that we can get, you know, the 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 Choco Taco or whatever character from whatever cartoon we we just learned about that month and we would run outside or we would already be outside playing football in the street and Sailor Moon was one of the ones that I started buying it was like early on too where you start I mean at that age the way that I was socialized and most boys were socialized were to watch a lot of, you know, rough and tumble fighting male, like heavy testosterone or heavy boy marketed cartoons. And Sailor Moon was the first that I can think of that was girly, quote unquote girly, that I got into. And yeah, so sort of thinking back on it, I would say Sailor Moon and Powerpuff Girls were two really uh, monumental cartoons that I watched growing up. Yeah, no, that sounds about right. Powerpuff Girls is also just like awesome. Um, it's so much fun of a show to watch. Um, that was another one that I came to mad late because I didn't have cable. Like, if you didn't have cable, then you couldn't watch Powerpuff Girls or Dexter's Lab or anything like that until you were over your friend's house. So it was one of those things that I would watch whenever I would go to someone's house who did have cable. And in the meantime, I was watching whatever I could, you know, before and after school and those cartoon blocks on like Fox Kids. That's so funny. Yeah, no, I, that's funny. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, this is a struggle. This is a struggle. But hey, mm-hmm. you made it. 
<laughs> that's right. That's right. Still don't have, I still don't have cable though. I, I cut the cord on that. Now, now it's just streaming services. We got, we got so many streaming services now. It covers all my bases. It's funny how things come full circle. <laughs> yep, exactly. I'm back to not having cable. <laughs> that's funny, but now you, you know you got streaming, so you probably have more choices of things to watch than we did when we were younger, anyway. Yeah, what I do need though, now that I have access to this stuff, I can revisit a lot of the cartoons that you know you, you would only watch episodically or when you happen to catch it when it was like appointment television. And Sailor Moon is one of those things that was not only appointment television for me, but it was also pretty limited. I think only the first, at least in the time slot that I would watch it, I think it only lasted a season or two. Like it was the the first season, like the Queen Barrel season. And yeah. then I remember the season with, uh, I can't remember the antagonist names, but there were the ones who were like, pick a Cardian. And they would throw that shit out like Gambit and it would be a monster. <laughs> and, uh, like, and, and, and? Yeah, <laughs> yeah those, those, which season was that? Was that season two? Three? Yeah, that's the beginning of season two. Season two, okay. So those were, those were the only two seasons then that came out on regular network TV. And anything after that, I haven't seen. Like, maybe I would have caught an episode or two. But I actually haven't binged the, the rest of the series. So I don't really know much of what happens after that. And now that I have access to it all, I should probably revisit. Yeah, you definitely should. It's all on Hulu now. Um, the voice actors are different. And it is the uncut version. But so you, it, may, it may be a little different from what you remember, but it's still really good. Oh, so they let the gays, they let the gays happen now. They're not yeah, cousins anymore. Yeah, they let gay people be gay. <laughs> uh, so much weird anime editing that happened in like <laughs> the 90s and 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely worth a rewatch. And I think uh, it gets better and better. I feel like season three and season five are some of the best seasons of the show. So I would. I would definitely rec highly recommend. Then I'm missing the two best seasons then because for me, it was just one and two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I loved season two as well. And season one is, I think, so classic. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely something there. Um, but when you were, when, when you did watch season one and two, did you have any favorite episodes or moments you remember? I mean, this was such a long time ago. So the thing that stood out most to me would have been the finale of the first season when they fought Queen Barrel. And that one, so there, there's like, there was a stage in life, like there was watching cartoons in elementary school and you get the rhythm of what's going to happen in an episode. You get that everything is going to be okay, especially in formulaic episodes like, you know, like Sailor Moon, you, you know, she's going to end up doing, you know, Moon Prison Power or whatever and throwing her TR and that's how the bad guy is going to end. You watch Power Rangers, you know, there's going to be putties first, you know, there's going to be a monster, you know, Rita's going to make the monster grow, they're going to get the Zords, like you, you get the formula no matter how young you are. Sailor Moon, though, was one of the first cartoons that I watched when I started getting into anime where motherfuckers got clapped like in the in the, in the finale and tell me if I'm wrong because I haven't seen this since I was a kid but I remember them all dying like that shit scarred me and then them coming back at the end with uh uh she was Sailor Moon was holding the crystal she had the orb around her 
Queen Barrel was like blasting that shit. And, and she's like, <laughs> she's calling for her friends to help. She's like thinking back to the memories of the Sailor Scouts that got clapped. And then they all put the hand or, or around the crystal and the fucking music starts playing and they win. Sailor Moon passes out. And she's, I just remember her being like, like, thank you everyone or something like that. And then, and then passing out. And just the fact that all the Sailor Scouts died, like when the first, like, I, I can't remember the first one who died. I think it was Mercury. That's what I remember in my head. When Mercury got knocked, I was like, is she... I mean, she's not dead, right? Like, you know, she's she, she gonna come back in a second. And then they went to the next scene and then another one got clapped. They started, they just started dropping like dominoes. I was like, they are actually killing these people. And, and that's, that's my biggest Sailor Moon memory was the Sailor Scouts dying and then them coming together to do the spirit bomb at the end to defeat Queen Barrel. Like that, that will be seared in my memory until I am in the grave and I'm grateful for it. Oh my god, that is so funny and so yeah, that's such an epic scene for the same reasons. And I'm happy like you picked up on them dying. When I was younger, I did not pick up on it. I was just like, oh, oh they died. They was dead. They definitely <laughs> died though. Like in the Japanese version, it's a lot more uh less uh they don't hide. It. They don't try to hide it. They're like, nope, they're dead. In the English dub, they like try to like, no, they just got captured. They're yeah, don't okay. they like? Don't they like? fade away when they die or something like I can't huh I mean this was I, I I must have been I don't know 10 to 12 years old or something like that so my memory is foggy but I remember I remember realizing like no they they died like one by one they were dying and that uh that was that was there was there was a couple shows like that Sailor Moon being one of them where people died and another one I don't know if you ever watched Mighty Max but Mighty Max was another one where at the end sort of the the finale episodes like Norman and Virgil, like people started dying and you're like, this, this isn't supposed to happen. Like that, this isn't, this isn't part of the formula. We had a formula. We had an agreement here that everything was going to be okay. And now this shit isn't looking okay. So those, those type of things stuck in my head. It's like my early exposure to cartoon death. Yeah. I never watched Mighty Max, but yeah, Sailor Moon was definitely one of the first shows for me too, where I was just like, wait, hold up. What? Like, what do you mean? Right. What? Like at one point she throws her tiara at Jedi and he just stops it. I'm like, wait, no, but like that's not supposed to happen. That's supposed to happen. Like when she throws it, that's that's it. That's the <laughs> Y'all have taught me every episode leading up to this that there is a cause and effect that I should expect. And now I got the cause and y'all not giving me the effect. Starts messing with you, yep. Yeah, it's disrespectful. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think that was one of the things that like hooked me to Sailor Moon and, and other anime too or it's just like even like Dragon Ball Z I was watching at the same time where mm -hmm. you know people were dying I mean they were coming back with the Dragon Balls but it was right, like oh right. like this is different like oh and I gotta tune in for like a continuation of this story every day yep. you know yep, rather than yep. like everything you know with Sailor Moon though more so it, it did like something concluded every day but there was still like this underlying story going on with like queen barrel like the overarching villain for the season right but yeah it's it was rough i was like this is stressful i gotta come back tomorrow now <laughs> yep yep it got addicting i absolutely loved it i remember watching dragon ball before dragon ball z i remember dragon ball used to be another sort of early morning episode when 
a lot of these studios were sort of testing the market and seeing if anime could be successful in the United States. And a lot of the series didn't last long or they would just be relegated to unsavory time slots. I mean, the, the six in the morning time slot or, you know, a, a Sunday morning time slot, like not, not Saturday morning cartoons like Prime, but like, I remember watching things like uh, Macron One, like these just niche anime that, or Ronin Warriors, stuff like that, that probably only lasted a season or two. But for for those of us who watched it, they they definitely resonate. They they stuck with us. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Those are some other rough ones. GI Joe. I mean, I wasn't watching when I was younger, but I watched it later on, and yeah, like oh, or Thundercats. I was watching Thundercats then classic yeah but um you spoke about a few different scouts but do you have a favorite yes but i wonder if it would be different now so my favorite when i was a kid i had two favorites mars was my first favorite and then jupiter but if i'm thinking about it now as an adult it's like i fell in love with the characters that most represented what i was supposed to like as a young boy like what i was taught to like so Mars was, you know, spunky and would fight with Serena all the time. And Jupiter was the tomboy. And those were the ones that were, yeah, that I, I mean, I was, I was, we were, we were conditioned as boys to, if we're going to watch something like this, to try to seek out the most masculine type characters. I wonder now if I were to go back and watch it, if I would have a different favorite. I, I'm really not sure, but mine growing up was, was definitely, Mars and Jupiter. Mars was my number one favorite, man. When she would take out that sheet of paper, write a write a poem in kanji on a motherfucker's head and the fireball start coming out. Like that was that was my shit. That was my favorite. Yeah, Mars is epic with it. Like I like I, I love all the scouts and like anytime anyone has says their favorite, I'm like, I get it. Um, so I don't know. It's hard. You may you may I think there's only one that I don't that I wouldn't get. It would be the one that I, the one that's most forgettable to me is uh, let me see Venus. Venus was the blonde one, right? Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember a single Venus scene to save my life. Like Venus. I I I cannot recall anything from Sailor Venus for some reason. That's fair. Yeah, I feel like I mean she definitely was there in those first two seasons, but. Um, she does like have a similar personality to Sailor Moon. Right. In my head, she's like, oh, this is the blonde that's not Usagi. Like that's 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 the only way that I remember Sailor Venus. But it seemed like, you know, Mercury was the nerdy one. She had a, a personality in a role. Mars was the spunky one. Jupiter, like Serena, like they all had a, a more defined role in my, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 year old brain in a way that Venus somehow just didn't stick for me. I don't know. No, that makes sense. Cause she didn't have like a, like she didn't fit into any like, like specific role, like said, you know, like Sailor Mercury right. part one and like Sailor Mars is like the antagonist almost or not antagonist, but you know, like the- Right, right, right exactly. Um, but Sailor Venus, what they, I don't know if they do it. They, they don't show it as much, I think in the dub. But um, she's the leader of the inner senshi for some reason. Um, and she's supposed to be like a double for Sailor Moon sometimes. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, it's probably probably too much nuance for me to catch at that age. Yeah. Like I, I think I think you're exactly right that like we were able to pick up, or at least I was able to pick up pretty easily. You know, this is the smart one. This is the fighter. This is the whatever. This is the leader. But without that set archetype, the type of archetypes that you could sort of file the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles into, like Donatello's the smart one, Raph is the angry one, Mikey's the funny one, Leonardo's the leader. Without being able to file into that category, it's it was just easy for me to to not be able to wrap my head around it. Yeah, especially because like Sailor Moon's like the leader, so you're like, wait, why is she the leader too? And this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the um, I mean, I hate to like do all this, but um, the manga actually, she was actually the original senshi in the manga. Like there was a Sailor V manga. Oh yeah, school me on this. School me. Okay, I was like, I don't know if you know. I'm not trying nah, to let nah, let Taylor me Moon's playing. Hey, yeah. I got I got no ego in this. Tell me this shit. You you are you are the expert here. I'm going off memories from 20 years ago. Yeah, and this is something I learned afterwards. But um, yeah, so the manga originally started as Sailor a Sailor V manga. And then um the creator decided to, or I think I don't I can't remember if she decided to expand the group or if like I think she's, it got picked up and they were like, oh, let's make it a team instead. Or I forgot exactly how it came. And that's how she went from having Sailor V to like, okay, I'm going to make a whole, like a five group, five girl group, um, similar to so, Power Rangers. And then she created, you know, Sailor Moon and everyone else. And, so if I'm understanding you correctly, the creator herself, uh, themselves found Sailor Venus boring and decided <laughs> to switch to someone else. Like, we need some more flair. I don't know about this. <laughs> like, you know what? This is a trial run. This is the first batch of cookies. Now I can do the real batch. <laughs> <sighs> well, when you put it like that, damn. I don't know. I gotta, I gotta look it up again. <laughs> like, let's try this again with somebody better. We, we right. can do um that's also why she also has like her own cat and all these other things uh i got see that i need to i need to go back and rewatch it as an adult there's there's a really unique experience that i've gotten to have in writing this book that i've you know that's coming out soon where i've, I've had to go back and rewatch some of my favorite cartoons as an adult and some of them really really hold up some of them absolutely don't but it's every time it's just really interesting to have a grown-up understanding and juxtaposing that against whatever my childhood understanding of that thing was. And it's it's just really sort of interesting and, and revelatory and just understanding my own development. It's it's really it's really fun. Yeah, I um have done that a few times too. Like I went back and watched Gargoyles and I was like, this show is Oh, so that that shit better. holds up so that much better up. than i remember yeah oh man i was the, amazed the, <laughs> gargoyles so is well. so impressive in how timeless it is it's one of those things that yeah it's, it's one of the few that when you when you rewatch it as an adult yeah i completely agree it's better than when you watch it as a kid because there's so much that we just couldn't wrap our minds around as kids we didn't understand what it was alluding to we understood but not the way that we would understand today and it's definitely worth rewatching as an adult. Like you, you almost get whenever you rewatch a cartoon like that, like a rich cartoon like that as an adult, it's like watching two two different experiences, two different series. You have the the experience that you watched it as a kid, and then when you rewatch it, it's like watching another show. It's it's almost, I mean, the closest way I could describe it is like watching a spinoff of your childhood show. 
it's the same show, but you're watching it completely different than you did, you know, a long time ago. Yeah, that is, I like that. That's so true. Cause it did feel like, like you said, like it's, it's like a different show from my memory. It's like my memory, what I know is what the show is now. And it does mm-hmm. almost like a spinoff or like, yeah. like watch before, which is a distant memory and like doesn't even right. exist anymore. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's so true. But yeah, I do. I also think Sailor Moon holds up, but I'm also very biased. Um, I mean, there are some problematic things, but we don't really talk about them. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I think that just comes with with anime in general. You just got to be like, yeah, you got to just know when to when to turn off your brain and right. let it slide to try to enjoy everything else exactly <laughs> it's like all right that's kind of cringy but you know we're just we're just gonna you know, sweep that under the rug we're gonna, yeah. we're gonna let that we're gonna let that slide deep breath all right <laughs> keep it moving yeah. um i do want to talk about you a little bit because you are doing a lot and i love it all absolutely um, too much way too much it's awesome though but yeah I, I mean do take breaks too though like take vacations I'm going on vacation in 48 hours. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Actually, by the time listeners are listening to this, I will be in Portugal. Like I will not be in the country. So yeah, I've got a vacation, a much needed vacation coming up. But yeah, lately it's been, life has been very busy, but very good. You know, I, I, I can't complain about any of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am happy for you. Um but yeah, but tell me like how you got to where you are. Like you're editor in chief, life hacker, hosting their podcast. You have a newsletter with the Atlantic and this book coming out. Like, can you give me like your origin story and just tell me, like, give me your whole journey from like beginning yeah. to now. I mean, it was a really strange journey in that I, whenever I talk with colleagues who are writers, who are professional writers, who are professional journalists, who, you know, are authors, most of them started their career in writing a long, long time ago. Like most of them knew, you know, around college or shortly after college, that was when they started writing. That was when they started sort of pointing their career in this direction. I was pretty different in that most of my early life and undergrad and grad school, and I served in the Peace Corps, all of that was pointed towards me working in international development. Like I, that was that was my career trajectory. I had loved, you know, cartoons and comics and anime and movies and TV. Like I was I was always obsessed with pop culture stuff and I loved it. But there was a, I guess, pragmatic or practical or sort of down to earth side of me that didn't either didn't realize that being a writer in this way was a viable career option or I either didn't realize that it was a career option or didn't think that I would be able to do it. So instead I focused on the thing that I also did enjoy and did find value in, um, but ultimately ended up wanting to get away from. And that was doing international development work. So I got my master's degree in public policy and nonprofit management. I worked in nonprofits for a while. My goal was to be a diplomat. So I took the foreign service exam and somehow passed it. That's an exam with like a 3% pass rate. It ended up being just a sort of a lucky fluke that I ended up <laughs> passing that in DC. And my plan was to go off after the Peace Corps and be a diplomat for the United States in a foreign country. And I ended up at some point in around 2015, I think, 
2014 or 2015, changing my mind and deciding that I wanted to write. I had always enjoyed it. I remember ever since I was in, you know, second grade, like back when I was watching things like Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball or in Mighty Max at six in the morning, my best friend from elementary school, Jamil Crooks, if you're listening to this, bro, like we used to write these stories that we wanted to get on Fox Kids. Like we used to write letters to Fox Kids, like we were writing letters to Santa Claus saying like, pick up this cartoon it would be really great. We wrote theme songs that sounded like Power Rangers theme songs. Like it was all just emulating things that we had been watching growing up. And I loved that stuff. But at some point I, I left it behind and thought, let me do this other serious stuff. So I changed my mind away from that serious stuff around 2015 and got back into writing. And that was when I decided to quote unquote, become a writer. And I, my dog is shaking herself off. I started writing some ideas without really knowing where I was going to try to publish them, like where to submit them. I didn't know anything about submitting writing. I didn't know anything about journalism. I didn't know anything about pop culture writing or cultural criticism or movie reviews or any of that stuff. I just happened to write this piece called Why Am I the Only Black Kid in Westeros? And it was based on the start of Game of Thrones. Like it was before Game of Thrones was really big, but it was on its way there, I guess it was the, the, the kindling was there. Mm-hmm. And I was writing about representation in Game of Thrones. I had read the books. I was watching the first season of the TV show. And it was the same year that Black Nerd Problems, uh, you interviewed Will Evans and Omar Holman recently. Yeah. yeah so they had started Black Nerd Problems, I want to say 20, 2014 or 2015, one of those years. They sort of blur together in my head. Uh, but when I had written this piece, not knowing where to submit it, that was also the year that they had founded Black Nerd Problems. And I was like, uh, maybe this is perfect then. Like, maybe I'll just send it to them. And we had this mutual friend, someone who I, <laughs> who I knew from middle school. So, and we were just like Facebook friends back when I was on Facebook. And I sent this thing to her and asked if she would pass it on to Will. Long story short, she eventually passed it on to Will. Will liked it and was like, yeah, let's publish it here. And then that was the first thing that I had ever published on the internet was on Black Nerd Problems, me writing about diversity and representation in Game of Thrones. And once I knew that I could do that, like once I knew that my work was publishable, like it, it, you, you, I got a self-esteem boost from it. And I wrote another thing and another thing and another thing. And that ended up not only, you know, giving me a, a portfolio of things that I've written, but you just end up getting bigger bylines and bigger bylines and honing your craft while you're at it. And the rest that came after that was, I don't know. I mean, it was, of course, like hard work and all that stuff, but a lot of just coincidence and lucky breaks as well. There were people who read my work and was like, hey, could you write this for Vulture? Or could you write this for Huffington Post? Or could you write this for wherever? And the more I did that stuff and the more experience that I gained, uh, the more confident I felt in the skill set that I was growing. And uh, I eventually applied to be deputy editor at Lifehacker which isn't pop culture related at all, but is related to another thing that I really do enjoy, which is just sort of coaching and uh, 
service journalism. I really do like the idea of being able to help people. I guess that sort of ties back into my nonprofit side of just wanting to uh, be be helpful to people around me. So that it sort of satisfies that side of me while still giving me the opportunity to write. I started as deputy editor. I got promoted to editor in chief. And recently, this was uh, a month or two ago, a few months ago at this point, the Atlantic reached out. I had published a few things to the Atlantic before, some essays about masculinity and representations of masculinity and pop culture, and another thing about um, representations of law enforcement and pop culture and how I used to be a big fan, like many people at some point in their lives were big fans of law and order. And I was talking about in the wake of you know a certain level of understanding about how police work and police work with people of color and high profile police shootings, how it was very difficult, if not impossible for me to continue watching shows like Law and Order and things that were basically, you know, propaganda. So I wrote stuff like that for The Atlantic and they reached out, having read a lot of the stuff that I had written for Black Terror Problems and asked if I would write an ongoing column for them in the form of a newsletter. So that's how that started pretty recently. It's called Humans Being. It's basically an analysis of pop culture through the lens of ethics and a lot of recommendations on things to watch. It's basically just my excuse to convince like bougie Atlantic readers to watch anime and cartoons. Like that's, that's, that's a lot of what I'm doing here is just tricking them into like reading things like Saga and watching, you know, Arcane on Netflix or, or, or whatever it is that I want to recommend them, <laughs> recommend to them. So that's been a lot of fun getting Atlantic readers into more just nerdy stuff that they might not otherwise be exposed to. And at the same time, while I was building my career as a writer, I started writing this book, which is a memoir. And that's sort of the, the third thing that I have going on that's like keeping me busy. I'd say the three main things that I'm doing right now and that I'll be doing, you know, in, in 2022 and the year coming up are Lifehacker and The Atlantic and Piccolo is Black. And all three of those things are amazing and great. And I love them. And they're sort of the three balls that I'm juggling at all time and, and trying not to drop any one of them. But overall, all of, all of that is a long way of saying I had a unique career path and also that it's never too late to sort of pivot towards those things that you love. Like you could, I didn't know, I didn't know shit, Victoria. I didn't know anything about, anything about journalism, anything about like, I didn't know how to pitch. I didn't know how to publish. I didn't know any of it. But as long as you're curious and able to learn and able to ask questions and, you know, embarrass yourself every now and then. Like, I'm sure I've, I've written some terrible, you know, drafts in the past. I'm sure I've published some things that I would look at now and, and cringe at like the, the writing style or how I explain something. I'm sure I submitted drafts of stories to things or to contests or whatever that were just, you know, at the quality level of where I was at the time. And that's okay. Like that's, that's perfectly fine. That's part of the process. That's part of the process that no one really sees or talks about. Like everyone, everyone that we see who is successful, we see the tip of their iceberg. We see the success that they, that they reached where they are now. 
but we don't see all the times where they were, you know, stumbling over themselves trying to learn how to do this thing. And I will never hesitate to admit that I've stumbled a lot just trying to figure out how to write and how to publish and how to pitch and how to, you know, get myself out there and how to get an agent and how to get a book and how to do all this stuff. So, and I'm still learning, like there's, there's never a point where I will feel that I figured it out. Like I, I still don't feel like I figured it out. I still feel like I'm learning a lot and I enjoy that journey. So, so long as you're doing something where you enjoy the journey, I think that's the most important part and the success. I mean, it'll maybe come, it maybe won't, but it, it sort of won't matter because the, you'll, you'll be enjoying the journey so long as you can like eat and pay your bills and do everything else. Yeah. I'm so happy you said that because that's exactly how I feel. Like I'm just like going along with the like flow of things. I'm like, oh, this feels right. I'm going to lean into this and like, oh, this is feeling right. I'm going to, oh, this opportunity came out. Let me, let me explore this a little bit. I'm just really like just feeling it out. Yeah don't know anything and, just like this seems cool let's try this yeah out. and you just do things like the, the the best thing that you can do is is do things create things and a lot of times I would say more often than not the things that have brought me you know any amount of quote-unquote success they weren't the things that I like thought <laughs> would bring me success they weren't the things that I you know expect like the, the most the, the most viral piece that I'd ever written for Black Nerd Problems, I think it's the most read piece on Black Nerd Problems to this date, was about a goofy movie being uh, the blackest Disney movie and how Max was, you know, a black character. And I remember the day, the night that I wrote that. I was writing it one night. I was staying up late. And I remember talking to Omar Holman, who you had on the podcast. I told Omar, I was like, yeah, I'm just writing this shit for me. Like, this shit about to go plastic. This is going to go wood. Like, nobody cares but I'm about to pour my heart and soul in this shit. Like, like, like it's a diary. Like I am just writing this for myself. And that ended up blowing up because a lot of people related to it. There are other things that I've had written that I like hadn't even thought of when I had gotten a phone call from the Atlantic to do this, this column, I had spoke to Jeff Goldberg, the editor in chief of the Atlantic. And he had brought up something that he remembers that I had written that I didn't remember. Like, it was something that I'd written in Comic-Con coverage talking about ta Coates being, it was when he was doing the Black Panther run and he was on this panel. And I was just getting some jokes off about how the panel was sort of a disaster and how ta Coates like did not want to be there because it was just such a disaster. And he looked like he just wanted to jump off a cliff. And Jeff Goldberg was bringing that up as this thing that uh, that he remembers laughing at and that he enjoyed. And it was something that, you know, wasn't, to me like this this important thing but just the fact that your work is out there for people to discover those are the things that end up turning into opportunities down the road it's like i mean a lot of it is serendipity and luck and good fortune or whatever but that serendipity or luck or good fortune or whatever can't happen unless your work exists out there you're at least giving yourself the chance the odds of having someone stumble across the stuff that you do and seeing your potential or seeing your value or, or, or liking your work and wondering if they could do something with you. And that's been a lot of my experience is just creating stuff and learning and having some of those things turn into some really cool opportunities that I'm grateful for. That's super cool. 
and it's always kind of scary when someone brings up something you wrote that you don't remember you're like oh crap <laughs> like yeah and I'm sure like if I read it now or or the other things that I wrote that year I would I would edit the shit out of them like that's just but that's yeah. that's fine like that just shows how much we grow as writers and as creators like you're nothing I, I try not to be precious about anything that I write the sooner I understand that nothing I write is going to be perfect like the, the better like nothing I write is gonna be perfect it's gonna be somewhere in between like shitty and passable and sometimes good and and that's okay that's for other people to decide to worry about I just want to do the best I can with the skill set that I have and continue to hone that skill set and uh yeah let let other people find it and hopefully relate to it and you know take the opportunities as they come yeah yeah that makes all the sense how did you decide on the uh name piccolo's black and also i remember that goofy movie post too and it it may be the most popular because i remember i remember loving that that article as well but yeah yeah that went that went crazy viral um and that was that was really validating it was one of the things where um well two things one it sort of answered for me, maybe not at the time, but sort of down the road, it answered to me the why of why I write. The why for me, and then there's, there's a million reasons to write. There's no right or wrong reason, but you know, some people can write for the fame or the notoriety or for the money or to feel smart or to, you know, to vent or whatever. There's, there's a lot of reasons to purge your thoughts and feelings on a page. My reason is to connect with people uh yeah i guess that's the whole sentence there <laughs> like to connect with people um to connect in a way where there's something that i feel that i think is weird or niche or unrelatable and to try to be brave enough to explain that thing that i think is weird or niche or unrelatable and to have someone else say oh shit i feel that way too like i thought i was the only one like that is, that's the most gratifying feeling I can ever have as a writer. Like the, this most gratifying feeling I experience whenever I write something and someone emails me or tweets or whatever and says like, oh, I thought I was the only one. I feel that too. Like that's the biggest compliment you could give me. That's, that's the most validating thing for, for me. That's the reason that I write. So with that Goofy Movie article, again, it was something that I did not expect. I 100% did not expect other people to have felt that way about Max and the character and to see themselves as, you know, to see Max as a Black nerd and to see themselves in Max and all of that stuff. Like, I did not expect it to be a, a universally held belief or feeling. And then I wrote it out and then it happened that everyone felt the same way like everyone everyone felt that way and it was one of the earliest times or at least for me one of the earlier times that i started exploring the idea that there were so many characters in the 80s and 90s for people who were born in the 80s or 90s who were growing up during that time the early 2000s as well there was there were so few characters of color there was so little representation that we all sort of did the same mental gymnastics and we ascribed race to characters where race didn't necessarily exist. 
And it's something that now we all sort of understand, I think, or at least people in the, 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 the nerd community or especially the black nerd community uh, or people of color, like we, we all get it now. It's, it's sort of a, a common understanding now. But at the time it was sort of, it was new, or at least it was new to me, the idea that like, oh yeah, we, we all saw these characters as black. We all saw, you know, uh, Piccolo or Doug's best friend Skeeter or Ursula or Panthro or all of the gargoyles, I would say. Uh, the, the whole war room in Transformers Beast Wars. Like we, start, we started seeing these characters as people of color. And sometimes I think the creators were intentional about it. We're sort of nodding to it. They might have a black voice actor or they might have a character, you know, with a broad nose who behaves a certain way. And then there were other times where the creators didn't plan it. I, I actually had a conversation with, um, with Jim, the guy who created uh, a Goofy movie, who wrote a Goofy movie. And he didn't think of Max as a black character at all. He didn't like that wasn't his intention. He wasn't trying to code Max as black. And I think that's often the case where that wasn't the intention necessarily. But as kids, we did what we had to do to see ourselves represented on screen, to like see the things that we needed to see. And that was a superpower that so many of us developed while white kids were, you know, being taught not to see race. Like we were, we were learning how to get really good at finding race because we had such limited representation and white kids who had all the representation in the world were being, you know, was being taught that race didn't matter. And that was, you know, the success of that Goofy Movie article and then, you know, exploring the whole concept a whole lot more is what ultimately led to me wanting to write the book Piccolo is Black and the title came from what I think is just a great statement that every nerd understands especially if you're a person of color from a marginalized group like you you, you just automatically get it it's one of those sort of if you know you know titles Piccolo is Black everyone who gets it will get it and then everyone else will have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. And hopefully my goal in this book, at least in regards to those people, is that it will be a thoughtful segue for them to see what it is that we understand so clearly in our bubble, to see what that is and see it in sort of a credible, intellectual, thoughtful, emotional way that they'll understand. It's tied into the story of my life and the trajectory of my childhood. And I think that for us, for people within our bubble, hopefully if the book is you know, successful in the way that I want it to be, people can read it and deeply relate and offer me that validation. That is the reason that I write sort of that, that relatability and feel less alone. I will feel less alone and the reader will feel less alone just by knowing we had these shared experiences. And then also for the people who don't live in our bubble for them to think a little bit more thoughtfully about diversity and representation and some of the benefits that they had and some of the things that you know marginalized groups of people didn't have and uh, you know see sort of our, our resilience in that and have a better understanding of why representation matters so that was that was why i wanted to write the book sort of to sort of serve both of those communities, like the people inside of my bubble and the people outside of it to help them understand 
And I think Piccolo is Black is just, uh, I, I'm, I'm so proud of that title. I'm so proud of the book. I'm, I'm really happy, uh, really happy to have it out there, man. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for people to be able to have the opportunity to read it. Yeah, that um, immediately when I saw it, I was just like, oh man, like, is, like what? Like it just hit me like right in <laughs> like a very specific spot in my heart. <laughs> just like, I guess there's just something special like being like, you have to be like a black Dragon Ball Z fan, I guess. And it's just yeah, like very it's, I mean, for people. it's a, like, it, it's so like, it, it, it is relatively small. But it is one where it's just like it's it seems like such a common sense statement to I imagine ninety nine percent of your listeners. Like everyone who's listening to this, if they see the title or if they hear us talking right now, we're talking about how Piccolo is black. Like it doesn't it doesn't really need explanation. They they get it. They understand. Whereas someone outside of our bubble, like they it's it would it would definitely take explanation. And one of the one of the fun challenges in writing the book actually was sort of uh, defining my audience and sort of trying to speak to both. Like I, I want to speak to you. I want to speak to Victoria. I want to speak to people who get it, so that you can you know relate and not feel talked down to at the same time. But I also wanted to make it in a way that people who didn't quite understand, who didn't grow up on the things that we grew up on, even, I mean, including people of color, like maybe they just didn't, you know, maybe they, they, they didn't have the pop culture exposure that, that we did. Maybe they weren't into anime specifically until later on or never. I wanted to be able to, to show them how important it is to some of us and how it's, how meaningful it is as well. It's not like this lowbrow, unimportant thing. Like the things that I watched as kids, Victoria, as a kid, I fucking loved like they had so much meaning to me they helped for my identity they helped make me whoever it is that I am today like I can attribute so much of it to I mean it helped raise me like the tv for better or worse raised me and that's meaningful and I want to be able to explain to people how and why that was so meaningful to so many of us yeah and by the time this recording goes up I'll actually have a uh a shirt I created called Toonami Raise Me I <laughs> <laughs> love it yep. yeah and, uh, man it's it's I ordered some samples and I've been wearing it like every day at home <laughs> yeah and it's so that true like it was yep. literally like every day after school like this is what I did like Toonami yeah. Raise Me um that's yeah. a fun fact for you I think you'll enjoy um yeah fantastic Frankie who you may know um or fanboy fighter um she did the Q&A with Sean Schimmel and uh Christopher let's say Sabat uh at Anime NYC last weekend uh-huh. or whatever. um and it was his Sean Schimmel's birthday voice of Goku and they sang him the Stevie Wonder version of happy birthday <laughs> Or she had them sing that version. And I'm like, that is amazing. <laughs> Just amazing. Just a fun fact for you that you'll, you should enjoy. <laughs> that is great. That yeah. is great. Highly appreciate that. <laughs> um, and since you work, you're the editor-in-chief of Lifehacker, um, what's the most important life hack you've learned? Whew, most important life hack. There are, whew, there are a lot. I would say, I mean, going back to 
my career trajectory and how I ended up at Lifehacker to begin with. I would say the biggest lesson that I learned or the biggest life hack sort of took place on my path to Lifehacker and not necessarily at Lifehacker. Just the fact that I ended up as editor-in-chief of Lifehacker. Uh, the lesson being just make shit, like do shit, create. It's, it's, and, 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 and not to be afraid of failure. Like the, it's, it's such a cliche by now, but I guess it's a, it's a cliche for a reason. It's a cliche because it's true. It's like, you're not, it's not, it's not, you're, you haven't failed until you quit doing what it is that you're doing. And if you can write or create and do those things bravely, then, then you're, you're ultimately setting yourself up for success. Like I, of the successful people that I know, people who I would consider just established successful people, there is very little, maybe no difference, probably no difference between them and the people who I know who didn't make it in writing or entertainment or whatever. There's no difference in their talent. Like there is no discernible difference that I could find in their talent. I mean, quite the opposite, actually. I could think of a lot of people who I grew up with who were better writers than me or more talented than me and who should be, you know, doing the things that I'm doing and way better. And they would probably do it better than I'm doing it now. The only difference between the people who are successful and stuck to, like, it made it in, I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, if, made it in entertainment and creating and living as a creative and those who didn't are the people who made it just didn't stop like they just didn't there's the there's no talent difference i mean we we like to see people who are highly accomplished and think that like they have some 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 skill that we don't have and like yes they they often do because they develop that skill over time but the important thing, the reason that they developed that skill, the way that they developed that skill was just because they kept doing it. Like it wasn't some innate talent that put them there. It was that they kept at it. And I mean, nepotism and wealth and all of those type of benefits aside, for, for those of us who create and enjoy creating, yeah, the, the, the way to eventually make it is to just keep doing it and uh that could be that could be really hard it could be really demoralizing it's it's definitely one of those easier said than done things but that's probably the the number one piece of advice that i could give to to anyone who wants to you know quote unquote follow in my footsteps or whatever it's that like it's it's, it's definitely not too late like Whoever's listening to this right now, I imagine it is it is surely not too late for you to pivot and, you know, take the leap and try to do the types of things that you want to do creatively. Um, you just have to stick at it. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Like, I pivot all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, pivot yeah. pivoting is is totally fine it, mm -hmm. so long as you are continuing to work for something that you want if you want something and you're continuing to want it and you're continuing to work towards it like the dam will likely break at some point and you'll have you know 
an opportunity that original you would have never thought that you would get. Yeah. What's your favorite piece of nerd merch that you own? Um, let's think. I mean, <laughs> my my most valued piece of 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 mer- nerd merch is probably my most expensive piece of nerd merch, and that is my PlayStation Five. Uh, that is yeah, that, is, <laughs> that is, is a rarity there. That is highly like, valued. It has gotten me through, man. It's gotten me through the pandemic. It is the best, actually. So I. I I was sort of late, I, not sort of, I was definitely late to getting a PS4. I had gotten my PS4 um, just a few years ago. And I told myself, it was while I was working on the book, Piccolo is Black, I told myself that when I had finished the first draft of the book, that's when I would let myself buy a PS4. This was a few years ago. And I finished the first draft of the book. First draft, of course, is always going to be a terrible, shitty draft. But I finished that draft. And uh, I got my PS4 and then the pandemic hit and then I got a PS5 and I have lived on that thing. When when it comes to like downtime and recharge time, it's what kept me connected through my friends during the pandemic and, and was able to keep a social life and recharge my battery. And it is absolutely great. So uh, I love that. That's that's my that's my most expensive sort of highly valued piece of nerd merch if that counts i would say other than that i have a signed print of alana from saga that's signed by fiona staples and it's framed and it's on my wall and it is a picture i don't know if you've read saga but it is i have i love it okay i absolutely love saga for anyone who's interested in my newsletter the very first newsletter that i wrote for the atlantic um for humans being, it was about Saga and why everyone should read it or reread it in anticipation of it returning in January, 2022. The picture that I have framed on my wall and signed by Fiona is the picture of Alana sitting on top of her ship, reading her favorite book and blowing a, a bubble of bubble gum. I, I love it so much. And that's probably my most, most cherished uh, thing because I just, find it gorgeous and I, I love saga and I love the art and it's just yeah beautiful so if my apartment ever caught on fire I feel like the things that I would grab would be my laptop my playstation 5 and this picture of Alana that sounds right to me <laughs> in order. yeah that, that comic is so good and I love it so much and I could talk about it forever I want to have Fiona on the show eventually maybe I should actually try and do that now that you're right saga is coming out in January perfect time yeah perfect time for it gosh but yeah I just I love that that's actually the comic that got me back into comics or it got me into comics on my own I should say and that kind of showed me that like there were comics outside of like superheroes and I was like yeah yeah and it's I, I I love that I love that there are you know indie comics that you could read that don't require a huge foundation of back knowledge it's more accessible like if I can just go on a quick rant really quick like comic book industry is fucking stupid like I I I absolutely hate the way that it's structured I hate sort of the 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 spoon feeding of it and that you have all of these tie-ins and all of these it's, it's sort of traditional comics when I'm thinking of Marvel and DC in particular it's the opposite of where entertainment is going with sort of the Netflix model of giving you an entire story and dumping a season on you. 
so you can like binge and get a complete story in the beginning, middle and end, and then have a conversation about it with your friends. Like comics right now are so inaccessible to people. Like for someone, whenever I try to explain to someone that they should get into comics, they don't know where to start. And it's frustrating for them. And I completely understand because you would need this wealth of back knowledge that no reasonable person can have unless in this case, you are reading something like Saga that you can just start from the beginning or manga where you could just start at volume one and there's not this big, large convoluted world where you feel stupid reading it. So I'm really glad to hear you say that, you know, you, you can get into comics because of Saga because you, you got something where you started in issue one and you knew everything that you needed to know. And, and you didn't, you know, you don't have to feel like you need decades of background knowledge on these characters and i hope down the line at some point i think it's already happening but i i'm glad that comics and i hope that comics continue to move more progressively to a format that isn't pure i guess but it's more graphic novels than individual comics like give me a complete story give us something with a beginning a middle and an end without needing a ton else and and ultimately these stories like saga or why the last man another brian k vaughn comic or paper girls or something like that they will be something with a beginning middle and end and it'll be a confined complete story and i think that level of i think having that bar that 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 lower bar of accessibility makes being a nerd more accessible. And I'm all about accessibility and less about gatekeeping. Same, yeah, that's why I started reading so many more indie comics because even though I do love, you know, superhero comics and I was, you know, trying to keep up with the Black Panther run and all these other things, it was like, oh, like you said, like I, there's an entry point that's like clear and like, I don't need to know anything else. And like, and these, right. honestly, I was just finding those stories to be a little bit more interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> well. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. but I won't go on my rant. Um, <laughs> um, Talk your shit, Vanessa. It deserves <laughs> to be said. And, and so forth. Uh, but, <laughs> but no, yeah, just just love to image and com- image comics, Black Mass Studios, and all those all those good stuff. Uh, trying to think. Yeah, of. that's my other favorite. Uh, I can't think right now. But um, yeah, what advice though would you give to someone? Although I feel like you gave a lot of advice, but advice to give to someone who like I don't know get to where you are <laughs> yeah yeah again it's not too late to 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 start writing some stuff I mean you can write your stuff on fanfiction.net for all I care like wherever wherever you want to write things or record things or film things start where you are and don't worry so much about, especially in the beginning, don't worry so much about measuring where you are to where you ultimately want to be, like your picture of success. Oh, I'm looking at so-and-so's career, who's a filmmaker or who's a writer or who's a YouTube star or whatever. Like to the extent possible, don't think of that big a picture because it can be really, really daunting to do that. I guess I can explain this in the process of me writing the book. I tried my best not to think of 
my writing sessions as writing the book. It was it was so debilitating to think of I am writing a book right now. I am writing this thing that's going to be you know 250 plus page pages with a beginning, middle, and end, and it's going to be a book. But instead, if you focus on the smaller bite-sized tasks that you're doing, if you're like, I'm going to do this, this essay or this chapter or this recording, and I'm going to have fun doing it, then you're going to learn as you do it. You're going to build community with those people who also like doing those things, which will also lead to you creating more things in the future. And you'll have stuff out there that who knows, people will stumble across and like and share and talk about, and maybe it will turn into those opportunities that you want in the future. It's the, it's the only way to do it, really. So create stuff, do stuff. It's, it's not too late. Build your community with other people who like to create stuff and do stuff. And, you know, don't look at it as a, as a competition between you and those people. You guys are on the same team. And having a community of like-minded people is a support system it's a benefit and it'll help fuel you to you know continue to be on whatever path you're on as long as you're enjoying it as long as it's healthy for you as long as you're having fun as long as you're learning then you're doing the right thing i love it it's so true and so true um and then just like sailor moon had her sailor moon says phrase at the end of every episode what would your phrase be so sailor jordan says it's never too late to start how about that perfect perfect and succinct yes i think that is totally the theme of this episode and i love it it's so true especially as a person who has just turned 30 this year i, I can never hear it enough <laughs> yep yep it's it's definitely the case it's it's never too late to start or continue or dust yourself off and try again like it's it's not too late it's too late when we're dead but so long as we're still alive you know we can still we can still create stuff and we can still have fun doing it and even then i mean look at van gogh you know <laughs> yeah you, <laughs> you, yeah this you've got to create stuff while you're alive so that, that post-mortem you know you can still yeah still have some stuff for people to discover yeah um and what's next for you and where can people find you the next big thing for me is pre-order is going to be available December 2nd for Piccolo is Black. I cannot wait for that date. I'll be in Portugal when it happens. I'll be on vacation. And uh, I'm just really excited to have the book out there. So if anyone's interested in reading Piccolo is Black, it will be available wherever you get books. I'll probably post it on social. I'll definitely post it on social media with links of where to get it. You know, if you want to Feed the Beast, you can get it on Amazon. If you want to support your local bookstore, you can get it from your local bookstore. If you want to get it from the library, you can request it from the library. But the title is Piccolo is Black, a memoir of race, uh, religion, and pop culture. It's just balancing those three themes throughout the lens and journey of my life. And you can follow me on Twitter. That's probably the best place to find me at Jordan M. Calhoun. And if you follow me there, you'll probably find everything that you need. Awesome. And I also have links for the pre-order in the description below. And I'm super excited to read it. I am definitely going to pre-order because Piccolo is Black and I need to learn and read from someone else who feels the same way. <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal. That's the goal. Thank you so much, Victoria. I've been having a blast having this conversation with you. 
Me too. This is awesome. I had so much fun and I wish we could talk more, but such is life. <laughs> such is life. We'll see each other at Anime NYC next year or something. There we go. Yep. If not sooner. Yes, 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 yes. And I'm in the area, you know, I'm in the, so. Uh, oh yeah. Then we'll definitely cross paths. We'll need, we'll need to make that happen. We'll need to take some action. Yes. Yes. It's happening. Um, and once again, I'm Victoria L. Johnson, host of the Sailor Moon Fan Club podcast. And you can find me at Miss Old School with a K on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find the podcast at Mooney's Club on Twitter and Mooney's underscore club on Instagram. And we have merch at Mooney'sClub.com. So check that out. And oh, and I'm on TikTok at Sailor Victoria. And thanks for listening, Moonies. Bye.